All right, well, last night we talked about spiritual birth and being born again, so to speak, and how that begins with conception. The Word of God is conceived in our heart. It develops, sometimes in a few seconds, sometimes over weeks, months, years. It takes the Lord to develop that seed until it brings forth new life, and we call that delivery. The Spirit breaks instead of the water breaks, and we are born again Theological word, regenerated, and simultaneously, we are converted. We call upon the name of the Lord in repentance and in faith. We're justified before God through faith in Christ. We're adopted into the family of God, which leads us to where we are going to be spending our time this morning. In 1 John chapter 2, if you'll find 1 John chapter 2 and kind of mark that spot, and then also find Titus 2. And mark that spot. We're going to look at both passages of Scripture this morning as we consider the family of God that we are born into. Now, we should understand that when we're born again, the family of God that we are born into is the universal church. We can call it the the worldwide church. It doesn't matter if it's Christians in Pakistan, Afghanistan, if it's Christians in North Korea, China, or down the road. We're all one big family brought into the family. Christ has broken down the the walls of separation and He's brought us into the family of God. So we understand that when we speak of the family of God, it's really big and it's multicultural, multilinguistic family of God, right? But practically speaking, we're all part of a local family of God or we should be part of a local family of God that... It serves as our more immediate family, so to speak. So we've got this extended family, and we've got this immediate family that we call our local church. And I think what we're going to see in 1 John chapter 2 and in Titus chapter 2 this morning is an ideal makeup of our local family, our immediate family of God. Now, since Adam fell in the garden, is anything really ideal anymore? So I don't want you to feel like that because we're not reaching the ideal that we're all, we all should leave with our heads hung down, right? We're, we're never going to reach the ideal until Christ comes back. But the Word of God sets before us the ideal. The ideal for the nuclear family is for uh, wives to submit to their husbands in all things as unto the Lord and for the husbands to love their wives just like Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it and then for the fathers to discipline and admonish their children and for the children to honor and obey their parents. And we're all looking around going, yeah, okay, that's a pipe dream, right? That's the ideal. That's what is set before us as the ideal, but we live in a fallen world, so our wives aren't always going to submit to us, right? We're not often going to love our wives like Christ loved the church. Our kids are not going to be obedient and honoring at all times, and we fathers can do a lousy job. So, but the ideal is there. We should strive for that, recognizing that we're not in an ideal world anymore. So when I put this together for you, and you look around at your, your immediate family of God, you may see some missing links. And those missing links affect our spiritual growth. You see that word at the top up there, growth. Because when we're born, we're born in this family, we're born in this family for the purpose of growing and maturing, right? And God has given us this family to grow us and mature us. And when links are missing, 
it slows our growth. It affects our growth. It affects our development. But it is what it is, right? So we want to paint for you a picture of the ideal this morning, uh, the ideal family of God. Look in 1 John chapter 2. We're going to read verses 12 to 14 and then hold on to that spot, and we're going to go back to Titus 2. 1 John 2, 12 to 14. See if you can identify the different groups that make up this church in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for His name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I've written to you, children, because you know the Father. I've written to you, fathers, because you know Him who has been from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Go back to Titus chapter 2, read verses 1 to 6. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith and love and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for... Your spirit and the word, and we pray that you would speak this morning to us through your word. Encourage us this morning, challenge us, motivate us to be an active, intentional, meaningful part of the family of God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when we're born, we are born into a family. And that family helps to nourish us, the family helps to grow us, the family helps to mature us. And it's the same in a spiritual family. When we're spiritually born again, we immediately become part of the family of God. And we're all one family, and and when you have one family, unless they're my kids who all seem to look different from each other, most of the time when you line a family up, you can look at the kids and go, yeah, that's I know his daddy. I know his daddy, I know, I know her mama, I know, because the kids kind of look like the parents usually, don't they? And we're all one family because we all have one father. If we've been spiritually born again, we have one father. Galatians 3, 26 tells us that you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 15 says you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba or Daddy, Father. So we all have one Father, God the Father. He has caused us to be born again to a new and living hope. He is our Father. So we're all part of the same family because we all have the same spiritual DNA because we all have the same spiritual Father who resides in heaven. We get our DNA from the same source. We have one Father. As one family, because we have one Father, we all look something alike. Not physically, of course. 
Though sometimes I've been to preacher meetings and I wonder if preachers don't all look alike. I remember one time when I was very, very young, I went to a convention. I was sitting up top, and this is so inappropriate, but I was sitting up in the top of the, of the place there, and I'm looking down, and all I see are fat, bald men. And I came home and told my Mandy, I said, sorry, Pete. I told, I told Mandy, I said, maybe you missed your calling, brother. Uh, I told Mandy, I said, I don't want to come home and be a fat, bald preacher. And, you know, here I am. I'm, I'm losing it pretty quickly. But we, sometimes we Baptists can buffet our bodies to the point we might resemble each other to an extent. But that, we're talking about a spiritual resemblance. A spiritual resemblance here. We all look something alike. J.C. Ryle said that we are all led by one spirit. And we're marked by the same general features of life, heart, taste, and character. Just as there is a general physical resemblance among brothers and sisters of a family, so there is a general spiritual resemblance among all the sons and daughters of the Lord Almighty. That makes sense because we eat from the same dishes. We eat the same food, the Word of God, don't we? We're led by the same Spirit. We go to the same throne of grace in prayer. We can be a thousand miles apart and we're still eating the same food, being led by the same Spirit and approaching the same throne of grace. And that makes us more alike than we realize. And I want you to hear this and I want you to process this and let this sink into your mind and see if you believe this, that the spiritual family is of far more importance than any family on earth. I think we've seen a bit of a revival and a resurgence of a concern for the family. We see people processing more so maybe now than my parents and maybe some of your parents did, who just did what everybody else did without thinking much about it. We kind of seem to be processing more like how should we raise these children? What should we do with these children? What should we not do with these children? What kind of education should we give these children? Should we homeschool? Should we private school? Should... I mean, it's not just a, a decision that you make because everybody else is doing it anymore. Like we're actually thinking through what's the best, the best route, spiritually speaking, for my children? What's the best route, spiritually speaking, for my family? Do you kind of see that resurgence of thought happening in the church? And people come to different convictions and different conclusions, and that's not what we're even talking about. What we're talking about is the fact that people are wrestling with how to raise their children and raise their families. And we we seem to be coming back to an importance on the nuclear family. But I want to propose to you this morning that more important than our nuclear physical families... Biological families is the family of God. And do we treat the family of God with more importance than we do our own physical families? Listen, the family of God will be a family for eternity. Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father, or children, or farms, for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. You know what Jesus just said? There will be people who leave their nuclear families for a spiritual family. So in Jesus' eyes, which is more important? 
the nuclear family or the spiritual family? Spiritual. And the promise he gives is, if that's you, and you lose your family because of your faith, then you are going to receive a hundredfold brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, children in this age. In this age. Where are we going to get them in this age? We're going to get them in our local church and in the age to come with persecutions. What should this spiritual family, this important spiritual family, practically look like if it's to be functional and healthy? What makes up an ideal spiritual family. Well, let's look in 2 John chapter 2. What does John say? John says that a spiritual family should include, first of all, children, right? So we enter, we enter this family as children. You can be 75 years old and be born again, and guess what? You're a child. You start as a child. You don't leapfrog. You can be 10 and be born again, and you start as a child. So you can have a 75-year-old and a 10-year-old both enter the kingdom of God, and they both enter the kingdom of God as children. Second John, or 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for His name's sake. We're not talking about little children. This isn't children's church that John's writing to here. Let's get the children together and let's have children's church. Little children, I'm writing to you because... No, he's speaking to those who are young in the faith. And what does he say about these little children? He's writing to them because their sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. Their sins have been forgiven. These children, they're so little, they're so helpless, they're so insignificant. There's nothing in them that merits forgiveness, yet they are forgiven For His name's sake. When you have a baby, if you take that baby and you set it outside in the elements, that baby will die. Why? Because it's helpless. It's insignificant. It brings nothing to the table but a cry. And it needs to be nurtured and it needs to be cared for. When we come into the children, to the kingdom of God, we come as children. And we don't bring a lot to the table. And we need to be nourished, we need to be cared for, or we will, left to the elements, die. Jesus said in Matthew 18 and verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like what? Children. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Isn't this good news though? Isn't it good news that you don't have to be a theologue to get into the kingdom of heaven? You know what a theologue is? It's somebody who just graduated seminary but doesn't have any experience. You don't have to be a theologue to enter the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't take a huge faith It doesn't take a huge repentance. It doesn't take a massive amount of knowledge to come to Jesus in repentance and in faith. It takes a small faith. It takes a small repentance. It takes a knowledge simply that Jesus Christ died for me. And I embrace that and I believe that and I'm convinced of that. And I want to live my life for Him. This is grace, no merit, a free gift of God. These children have been forgiven. That's all that can be said for them. Whether they're 70 or 7, they've been forgiven. And he goes on, if you drop down in verse 13, he addresses these children again and he says, I've written to you children, why? Because you know the Father. They may not know anything else, but they know God as not their judge, but their Father. 
They may not grasp the depths of His attributes. They may not can explain to you His omnipresence and His omniscience and His omnipotence and His sovereignty and His immutability and His eternity. And some of you are going, I don't know about all those things either. They may not be able to explain to you the deep things of salvation, but they grasp the simple truth that they now have a good, good Father. Children, the church should be made up of children, new babes in Christ, those who have just recently experienced a new birth, who come in and they realize, I've been forgiven and I've got a father. And when you have children, what do those children do? When you bring children into the, li- into the home, the home gets lively, does it not? The home gets messy, does it not? There's energy that children bring into the home. And when people are born again and brought into the family of God, we've got new fresh meat, so to speak, in the church. It brings energy into the church. It brings some messes into the church. It brings life. Children. We need children. Spiritual children in the family of God. He goes on in verse 13 of 1 John 2, and he says, I'm writing to you, fathers. Fathers. We could say old men. And we'll put those over here at the end of the line, right? Fathers. Old men. Now, this is not 100% age-based either. But there is more about age here than there is in the children realm. And we're going to see why. I'm writing to you fathers because you know Him who has been from the beginning. And then if you drop down to verse 14, he addresses the fathers again. And listen to what he says. Paul just copied and pasted here. I have written to you fathers because you know Him who has been from the beginning. Doesn't sound like too much, does it? But I want to propose to you that the knowledge that the children have of God as Father and the knowledge that the fathers have of God is far and wide different from one another. There is a knowing God that comes from walking with God through many dangers, many toils, and many snares, is there not? There is a knowing of God that comes from walking with Him through many victories, through personal revivals, through times of silence where it seems that God will not speak and will not hear. It's, there's a knowledge of God that comes with walking with Him through the mundane where you're just going through the motions to get by to another day. There's a, a knowing of God that comes from wrestling with God time and time again through many different seasons of life and then surviving it to say, I don't just know God as my Father, but I know Him in a real and in a personal and an experiential way do you see what these fathers can bring to the table when they mix and mingle with the children, the, new, the newly arrived children of God and the family of God? They bring a, a wisdom and an experiential knowledge of who God is because they have walked with God for a long time. They don't have to be 100 years old. They don't have to be 70 years old. But they have to have walked with God for quite a while, so they probably aren't 20. Does that make sense? In Titus, 
chapter 2. We're going to flip back and forth between these two if you haven't figured it out yet. Titus, uh, Paul writes to Titus, but as for you, this is verse 1, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrines. Let me just pause here, step aside, and set the stage for everything Paul writes here. This is not cultural. I hear people say, well, those things in Titus 2, that's all another culture, another time. It's not cultural. It's not time sensitive. It's doctrinal. And doctrinal in the church means we believe it, right? So Paul sets the stage here and he says, As for you, speak these things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Here's what's fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate. Fathers or older men should have walked with God to the, to the place where they are now temperate. What does that word temperate mean? I want you to pay attention. I want you to see what this picture that Paul paints. In the original Greek, temperate implies that this man is avoiding extravagance and overindulgence. He's lived his life on this earth. He's gotten to the point where he can temper his earthly desires and he doesn't have to look like somebody. He doesn't have to drive the fanciest vehicle in town. He doesn't have to impress you with his house. He doesn't have to impress you with his 401k. He doesn't have to impress you with his toys. He's not living to to be extravagant in this life and to look like somebody in this life and to impress anyone in this life. He's tempered all of that. He's gotten over that. Older men are to be temperate and dignified. And that word dignified does not mean that he holds his teacup with his pinky pointed out. The word dignified here means that his mind has been taken off of the world and it's focused on the holy. He's no longer concerned with the things of this world. And you know, as we approach that big fine line there at the end that we're going to eventually talk about this week of death, the things of this world continue to grow strangely dim, do they not? So the longer a person walks with God, the less their eyes are on the world, the less their eyes are on the things of the world, the less their eyes are on the values of the world, and the more their eyes are on holiness and pursuing God and knowing God in a more real and personal way. They are temperate, they're dignified, they're sensible. That word sensible, we're going to see it again and again and again, and it's self-controlled. They've reined themselves in, they've bridled themselves, they are learning to control themselves, they are sound in the faith. They haven't just gone to Sunday school and done the Lifeway lesson, but they've dug into the Word of God and they have learned what the faith is all about. They are sound in faith. They are sound in doctrine. They know the truths of the Word of God. They have wrestled with the truths of the Word of God. They are sound in faith. They are sound in love. Their love for God is solidified. Their love for their brothers and sisters in Christ is solidified. They are seeking to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength, and to love their neighbor as themselves. They are sound in love and they are sound in perseverance. Old age, spiritual old age, should produce a greater steadfastness, settledness, and endurance. Just get this picture of this father who has walked with God And he knows God to the point where his eyes are no longer on the things of this world, but he has got his eyes set upon the celestial city that is to come. He could care less about the the latest movie, the latest pop star, the latest whatever. He is looking for a kingdom that is yet to come. He has got his eyes on holiness. He is sound in his faith. He is sound in his love and he is pushing through and persevering steadfast until the end. What does a man like that bring to the family of God? I'll tell you what he brings. He brings wisdom. 
and he brings an experiential knowledge of God. We've got these children, new Christians, who bring an energy, and they are just like a bull in a china shop. You know who they are. They come to faith, and they'll just walk up to anybody and tell, tell them the gospel. And then we temper that, don't we? Eventually, we have, they grow into fathers. who might not be quite as reckless abandon, but they're living in wisdom and prudence and a knowledge of God's Word. They've experienced God for a long time. Abraham Kuyper said this, In the midst of the conflict, to be near unto God is blessed. And also apart from the conflict with the world or sin or Satan, when clouds gather over your head, when adversity, loss, and grief inflict wound upon wound in your heart, when the fig tree does not blossom and the vine will yield no fruit, then with Habakkuk to rejoice in God because His blessed nearness is enjoyed more in sorrow than in gladness. This has been the lesson of history in all times. That's what the fathers bring to the table. Going in Titus chapter 2, we see another group. We'll call them mothers. Paul calls them in Titus 2, 2, older women. Or Titus 2, 3, older women. We'll call them mothers. You know, Paul was a smart guy. Because if he said old women... Immediately he'd have been in trouble. He's just older. And he doesn't specify the age a woman would have to be to qualify as older either. This guy's not married, but he's sharp. He knows how to deal with these ladies, right? But given the context, given the time frame, the age at which one is considered an older woman would probably be the age attained at the time her children are raised and establishing their own homes. That's why me and Mandy just keep having them. Because we're like, if the youngest hasn't officially established her home yet, we're not older, right? What does he say about the older women? They are likewise to be reverent in their behavior. And the word reverent there literally means priest-like. Do you think of what a priest in the temple, how a priest in the temple would conduct themselves? And Paul is saying women... You need to conduct yourself as if you're a priest in the temple of God. Not malicious gossips. Not enslaved to much wine. But teaching what is good. They need to be priest-like in their character. And they need to be priest-like in their teaching. Teaching what is good. Teaching the younger women. Now, this is not, and I know some of our youth groups have tried to emulate this by getting the high school youth to mentor the middle school youth. That's not what this is talking about. It's not really even talking about young adults mentoring the youth. This is a picture of an empty nester who has loved her husband well or poorly, and now sees that and repents. This is about an empty nester who has raised her children well or poorly and sees her mistake and repents. 
turning around and seeing a younger woman who's just been married or is just beginning to have children and pouring into her and encouraging her and mentoring her in walk this way and don't walk this way. Do things this way. Don't do things this way. Focus on these things. Don't get wrapped up in these things. But it's, an, it's a mentoring of those who have been there and done that, pouring into those who are beginning to do that. Does that make sense? And I'm going to tell you, this has been a void in our churches for decades. Because what we've done is we've taken the older women and we separate them immediately from all the younger women. And let's not look at somebody in, in leadership as a problem because if we're honest, the older women don't really want to be cooped up with the younger women. And the younger women don't want to be cooped up with the older women. They want to have their own little women. And let's be honest, a lot of times older women have so unbiblically lived with their husbands and raised their children that biblically speaking, they don't have a whole lot to offer. And younger women want to do things their way, so if they had something biblically to offer, they don't really want to hear it. My life's just too hard. My kids are just too hard. My husband's just too hard-headed. And all that may be true, which is why you need someone who's been there and done that to say, here's how you choose to love your husband. And you choose to love your children. That's exactly what these older women are supposed to be doing. They're teaching them what is good and what is good. Verses 4 and 5, they may encourage the young women to love their husbands. You know why women have to be encouraged to love their husbands? I'll give you a clue. It's not because we're so lovable. Encourage the, their, these young women to love their husbands and to love their children. And some of you are going, well, how do you, how do you have to be convinced to love your children? Let me tell you, we need a revival of love for children. Kevin Swanson said the average American has half the number of children, twice the square footage, and seven times the debt as they did a hundred years ago. Half the children, twice the house, seven times the debt as they did a hundred years ago. And then he says, it appears we love drywall more than children. We need a revival of love for children and families. While children, he goes on to be sensible. There's that word self-control again. To be pure, to be workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. We're about to look at that because the next group is right there in verses 4 and 5. Who are these older women teaching? These older women are teaching the younger Women, right? And we'll call them sisters. How's that sound? They're teaching the younger women. What are they teaching these younger women? To love their husbands. To choose to love their husbands. They're teaching these younger women to choose to love their children. And how to love their children well. And how to love their husbands well. They're teaching them to be sensible, self-controlled, holding themselves in. Pure. He's talking about moral purity. And I'm just going to say moral purity 
goes beyond just being faithful to your husband. Moral purity goes to how you dress. In other places, Paul says that women should dress modestly. Not putting an emphasis on gold and jewelry and adorning their bodies, but upon holiness. And it's, it's a sign of something other than purity for a woman to want to flaunt what she's got. So Paul says you need to be a pure woman. Workers at home. Kind. Subject to their own husbands. That's a good one, isn't it? I've always found it interesting that some women who have the biggest trouble submitting to their own husbands have no trouble going to work and submitting to a man who is somebody else's husband. And that shows us that this is a spiritual issue, not just a gender issue, not just a feminism issue. If you can go to work and submit to someone else's husband and then you buck at everything your, hu- your own husband says, there's an issue there, which is why Paul says that women be workers at home, gentle, kind, subject to your own husbands. Why? So that the Word of God will not be dishonored. The gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake in the actions of these younger women. And again, I don't want you to hear me setting rules like, women, you have to either not work or work from home. Women, you can't work for someone else's husband. You know, you have to do this. Yeah, and we're not talking about rules here. We're not talking about little check boxes. We're talking about heart issues. Heart issues. John MacArthur said, as a woman, your priority is to God. And that means you obey Him. And then your priority is to your husband, and that means you love him and you submit to him. Your priority is then to your children. You teach them, you instruct them, you raise them in godliness and express your love to them. Then your sphere is your home, which is your haven, a place of hospitality. And then your ministry in the life of the church. Anything apart from these priorities brings dishonor on God's word. It's that simple. And if we're going to have an impact in the world, that's the way we need to live. And that's why we need older women encouraging younger women to do these things. To love their husbands, love their children, be faithful at home, not to dishonor the Word of God. So these young children, they bring life and energy. These fathers and older men, they bring wisdom and experience the mothers, the older women, they, they bring a nurturing voice to these younger women who are in a position to bring a great testimony to a world around them. When you can go into a restaurant and sit down and your kids not act like hooligans, people will say stuff. Or when you can go into a restaurant and your kids aren't all on separate devices to keep them from looking like hooligans. People notice. Because we live in a culture that is so dysfunctional. Maybe one of the greatest testimonies to the power of the gospel and the goodness of God is for sisters, young women, to be this type of woman. Who can, who can love a husband and love children to the point where they are a testimony to a watching world who doesn't see anything like this anywhere else. 
Now we come to the fifth group. We'll call these brothers. Young men. Young men. In Titus 2, 6, it seems like they get a pass because all he says to them is likewise urge the young men to be sensible. That word sensible again means self-controlled. This keeps coming up, doesn't it? Self-controlled, holding oneself in, being sensible. But think about it. What would really discipline and self-control not correct in our lives? Just not reading the Bible. We'll be self-controlled enough to get off Facebook and put your face in this book. Not that you can't. I just can't stop scrolling. My thumb's in scroll motion. I just can't stop. Every time I stop, I have to pick it up and look, and that's, that's not. Anything but a lack of self-control and a lack of discipline. In the words of John Piper, if there's one good use of social media, it'll be that the, on Judgment Day we'll all admit that we have plenty of time for prayer and Bible study. Self-control can correct lack of prayer. Lack of witness, fear of man, a besetting sin, a refusal to give sacrificially. A neglect of church attendance. It's like if we just took control, self-control, became sensible and disciplined and just did it, it would correct a lot of issues, wouldn't it? Do away with the excuses and just be sensible about the things of God. In 1 John 2, he gives more time to these young men. He says, I'm writing to you, young men, in verse 13, the latter part of verse 13. 1 John 2, verse 13, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. So somewhere in this progression from spiritual infants, spiritual children, to the place these guys become young men, they have learned to overcome the evil one. Now let's just think through this for a moment, guys. If we have not conquered that besetting sin that has overshadowed our life. Doesn't matter if we're 60. We haven't made it to young men yet in the spiritual world. Need I say more? If we're going to be young men, we have to overcome the evil one. We've got to conquer the evil one. And if we drop down to verse 14 where he addresses them a second time, we kind of see what this looks like to overcome the evil one. I says, I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So he has sandwiched the brothers between overcoming the evil one and overcoming the evil one. And what is in between the two overcoming the evil ones? First, they are strong. They're not spiritually weak. This isn't talking about physical strength. This is talking about spiritual strength. This is inner spiritual growth. They are strong spiritually. They've come to the place where they're no longer weak little children. They're no longer helpless little children dependent upon everyone else, but they have grown into strong spiritual young men who are conquering and who are walking with the Lord and who are victorious in their spiritual life. And Paul tells them in 1 Corinthians 16, 13 to be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. What characterizes a young man? It's strength. That's why we send young men to war, because they're strong. 
That's why we send young men, spiritual young men, into battle. Because they're strong and they can overcome the evil one. How are they strong? The Word of God abides in them. We're strengthened by the Word. We've got to get the Word in us. We have to hear the Word. Listen to the Word. Read the Word. Study the Word. Dig into the Word and do it consistently. I want you to know we do not usually grow through big events. We don't usually grow through weekend church retreats. That's not the times we see the most growth. We may get a little kick in the seat of the pants, but the most growth doesn't come from big revivals, big conferences, church retreats, big weekend events. The true spiritual growth comes from day after day after day after day after day, getting into the Word of God, digesting the Word of God, reading the Word of God, believing the Word of God, applying the Word of God. And when it gets dull, when it gets mundane, and if you're sitting out there going, the Word of God is never dull and mundane, that means you had not read it a whole lot because there are times when it just seems dull and mundane and is God even speaking through this? And why am I doing this? And I just say I've eaten some bland meals before. They weren't the best. Not from my house. Let me just clarify that. I've eaten some bland meals before that just weren't very good, but I ate them. Because I was trying to stay alive, you know, to tomorrow when I could eat something better, right? Sometimes we go through the Word and it's just huh, it's so spiritual low, it seems. But you don't just set it aside until some kind of Holy Ghost fairy dust gets sprinkled on you and fixes everything. No, you get up the next day and you get back into the Word and you nourish yourself on the Word yet again. And you keep going back to the Word until you, till God speaks to you. And that's when you grow. That's when you grow, when you are regularly, consistently reading and hearing and obeying the Word of God, and then you overcome the evil one. You overcome the evil one because you're strong, and you're made strong through the Word of God abiding in you. And because the Word of God abides in you, you can overcome the evil one. I think of Ephesians 6, Paul says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against powers and principalities and this present darkness over this age. And what does he say? He says, put on the full armor of God. You want to be strong? You want to be an overcomer? The Word of God abide in you? You put the full armor of God on. We put on the belt of what? Truth. The first thing is gird up your loins with the belt of truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness, spiritual strength. Put on the shoes of the gospel of peace and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. I know I've told you over and over again that ultimately every one of those parts of the armor don't point to just a piece of armor, but they point to who? Jesus, right? The belt of truth, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The breastplate of righteousness you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom and of God and righteousness. Shoes of the gospel of peace. He himself is our peace. Shield of faith. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. The helmet of salvation. He alone is our rock and our salvation. The sword of the spirit which is the word of God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word was made flesh and manifest among us. Put the belt of truth on. Put on Jesus. The breastplate of righteousness, you 
put on Jesus. Shoes of peace, put on Jesus. The helmet, put on Jesus. Put on Jesus. And Paul says in Romans 13, 12 to 14, the night is almost gone, the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. They overcome by the Word of God, by putting on Jesus Christ. We're going to look at this verse, I think, tomorrow, but just look real quick in Revelation chapter 12, and this is where we're going to wrap it up. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. Listen to what the Bible says. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. As we think about overcoming, they overcame him. Who they overcome? The beast, the evil one, Satan, the old dragon. They overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. This is who the young men are. We send young men to battle because young men and us old guys have the capability of doing something that most women don't. And that's compartmentalizing. We can literally be about to ball up into the fetal position and cry like a child and compartmentalize that and get into a fight. Go into battle. We can take our fear and put it in a box long enough to go into battle. Which is why so many men come back from battle and they're, and they're kind of suffering from mental issues, PTSD, because they can compartmentalize it in the battle, but when the battle's over, it's all there. Does that make sense? So when we go into battle with the evil one, we... We can love our lives not un- we cannot love our lives even unto death. We can compartmentalize in the spiritual world and overcome Satan. What, is a, what does a church family look like that's got new believers? It's like energy, doesn't it? There's energy. What does a church family look like that has older men, fathers? There's wisdom, there's experience. What about mothers? There's a nurture. What about sisters? There's a testimony that speaks loudly to the culture around them. And what about brothers and young men? There's a strength and a valor that they bring to the table. Now put alone, put alone any of these are weak. Put alone any of these have little impact. But you put them together... You put them together, and it makes a beautiful picture of the nuclear spiritual family of a local church. Real quickly, let's just think that on this side, God has given us leaders. To help hold this together. Pastors and elders, or elders, whatever you want to call them, or bishops or overseers, if you like that better. And deacons. 
And He's given all of these people spiritual gifts who exercise their gifts and their strengths in the family of God to be effective and to be a place of nurture and maturity and growth. So this is what God has given us from outside of ourselves to help us with growth. Tonight we're going to come back and we're going to look at what God has given us within ourselves to help nurture this growth. And then tomorrow morning we're going to talk about how these things come together to reproduce as we mature to reproduce and bring more children into the family of God. And then tomorrow night we're going to talk about how to deal with it when it all comes to a crashing halt on this side of eternity and we face death. Make sense? All right, let's pray and we'll be done. Father, we thank you for your grace, your love, your mercy. We thank you for your word again and just for giving us the energy of new spiritual life, for giving us the wisdom of those who have walked with you for a long time, the nurture of those who have raised their families, the, the strength and the valor of young men as they grow and mature in the faith and the testimony of young women to a culture around them that doesn't see the, the love and the joy and the peace of Jesus Christ anywhere else like they do in their testimonies. God, we thank you that all of these come together to paint a picture, to paint a picture of your goodness and your glory and play a role in seeing us wherever we are on the spectrum here, growing and maturing and developing into people that can be used of you. Well, thank you for how you work in our hearts this weekend. In Jesus' name, amen.